Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, four investors, four founders and four sustainable businesses. Did you know that chewing gum contains single-use plastic? Did you know that boats can be eco-efficiently supercharged? Did you know that fitness supplements can be created without damaging the earth? And did you know that coffee cups can be used more than once? In the months leading up to the summit, led by Wavelength Ventures, Blue Earth Summit received applications from some of the UK's most innovative businesses. We were on the lookout for businesses that can legitimately disrupt a whole market and identify solutions to make real change. Then, at Blue Earth Summit 2021, four forward-thinking businesses got the chance to pitch to four investors. Pippa Dunn from Broody, Andrew Wordsworth from Sustainable Ventures, Tom March from Red Rice, and Darren Westlake from Crowdcube. Here's what happened. So first up, we have Pixie, founded by Charlie Hall. Pixie are aiming to do what Tesla did to the car market and massively disrupt the marine sector. So please welcome Charlie. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, I am Charles Hall, um, CEO of Neva Group. I want to tell you a story about how I got to being here. And I exited my event production company, and I managed to buy myself a boat, and it was a motor cruiser, and we had lots of fun with my family. It was fantastic, and it was terrible because whenever I wanted to go anywhere, I'd have to put throttle down, and it was noisy and smelly and loads of uh, combustion engine stuff going on and fuel, and it really frustrated me. So I thought, well, what am I going to do with myself? Um, Why don't I start an electric electric boat company? Who do I need to form the team and fill their knowledge gaps that I don't know uh, to to get myself into a, a new business and a new sector and have lots of fun doing it? So... On my journey, I found Daniel Simpson and his right-hand man, Paul Luscombe. Daniel is an electrical engineer. He understands uh, control systems in uh, battery-powered devices. And Paul is pretty fantastic at uh, project management. Daniel's had lots of brilliant ideas, but he hasn't really formed companies around them and sort of decided to bring them to market. And that's what I wanted to do um, with him. So, what's the push and pull factors for this transition? We all know the first bit, where we are and where we want to get to. I think the first bit is personal choice and how people want to get around and use their entertainment time cleanly. The second, I think, is legislation. So I'm part of a a Southwest uh, Marine cluster who are hopefully pushing towards legislation to limit the use of combustion engines or ban them outright. I have created a partnership with Aqua Superchargers, who are, um, deliver supercharging facilities at marinas, and that will allow us to charge our boats very quickly. Luckily, in the marine sector, there's already marinas full of plugs everywhere. That's how boats typically get charged as they're going along. Um, MDL marinas are uh, forward-thinking and in the green space and are supporting us uh, as best they can. They're sponsoring one of our boats and, uh, yeah, getting us to market. And also, an itch that I needed to scratch was um, hydrogen propulsion, and partly the reason I'm here was through Guy and Viratech, who are doing uh, hydrogen-powered automotive uh, systems. I wanted to take their hydrogen technology and put it into our boats, but that's all to come. 
So, as I said, this is Nevotech, uh, Nevo Group, and we have three sub-brands, Pixie, Hippo, and Lightdrive. Pixie is the show pony, it's the fun bit, um, where we are showcasing our, our leisure vessels. Hippo are um, our commercial boats that we're going to start making, and we've had a lot of interest from the commercial sector, work boats, who want a green technology to power their boats that they have, and light drive. Uh, light drive is our take on the jet drive technology, so I don't know if anyone here likes jet skis or likes the sound of jet skis, if you show of hands. Oh, you like? Okay, great, perfect. Uh, but if you don't like the noise that they make, we're designing out that part, so we won't have that noisy combustion engine that gets them around the place. Um, so we are patenting a new jet drive system, and they can, that system can be used from uh, jet skis, as I mentioned, uh, to um, fast ferries. Uh, so we've got a lot of scope and development to, to do there. So this is our first Pixie, Pixie vessel. Uh, it's an SP800. It's an eight-meter day tender. It's, I wanted it to be here for this event, but there's things like COVID and Suez Canal being blocked and loads of fantastic excuses of why it's not here, but that's just the way of the world, unfortunately. Um, and rattling on, so I don't get the klaxon, um, what is the ask? What are we looking for? So we can grow organically, but we're going to miss a big opportunity, we think. We think the first to the market, or some of the first early adopters, are going to own the market. So our soft ask is 600,000, and our real raise that we want to get is 1.6 million, but we'll see how that goes. So we want to build the team. I've got uh, three people waiting in the wings to wanting to be part of our team, but we just don't have the, uh, the uh, working capital at the moment to employ them. But uh, for example, there's a sales director who's wanting to come on board, and she's got some fantastic ideas about uh, how we de uh, deploy ourselves internationally. We, uh, oh, I'm at five minutes, so I'll rattle this up really quick. We want to make some demo vessels. Ah, there it is because what typically happens in maritime companies is that they ask owners to use their boats. And although it's a really lovely ego um, boost to them, they also get a bit nose out of joint using their boat the whole time. And then from my previous experience in the event industry, go to boat shows and targeted specialized events that we do for our early adopters. So that's really hard to throw all that into five minutes. Hopefully I've got a lot of touch points in there, but it's us, uh, Neva, a North Star Marine Innovation Company. And there we are, that's it, I've Brilliant. done it. Thank Great. you, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. The, okay. the time goes fast, doesn't it? Yes, oh my God. <laughs> so right, we've got a few questions for you, I'm sure. Uh, I'll just go down the line. Uh, perhaps starting with you, Pippa, if you've got any thoughts or, or questions for Charlie. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so great. I think it looks fantastic. And I think there's no doubt that there is going to be consumer demand for this. You only have to look at what happened firstly in cars, now moving into electric bikes to know that it makes an obvious, it's an obvious place to go in yep. terms of boats. Uh, but when I was thinking about your business, I was sort of, I came down in an electric car today, not mine, um, but I was driven in an electric car. And one of the things, obviously, is that sort of anxiety you get yep. around whether you're going to make it to the next charging point. Yes. And I was just wondering, is that a bigger risk when you're on the seas than it is driving down a motorway? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so the way we're uh, addressing range anxiety or range fear is um, two uh, main uh, aspects. is having the supercharging network put in, so aqua superchargers, and putting them into selected marinas. We're also working with uh, Savvy Navi, who's an app 
uh, a navigation app system. And what they've done is they take into consideration the weather and the currents as well when you calculate how far you think you can get in your boat. So if, it's, if you're going against wind and tide, they'll be able to say, ah, you're probably not going to make it as you would do typically in any sort of maritime sort of sailing or getting from one place to the next, you have to be quite pragmatic of if you're going to get there or not. So yeah, it's also a different mindset with regard to combustion engines. You go, I've got 200 mile range, but you never normally use a boat like that. You're normally going from five to 10 miles, a bit like what I've heard before is that cars are only used for like one to two minutes. Uh, yeah, one to two minutes or one to two mile radius. That's typically how boats are kind of used as well. So... Hopefully that answers your question a little bit. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Tom, have you got any questions? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, my question is just in terms of purchase models, what do you think are going to be the most sort of likely purchase models, whether it's just purchasing outright, leasing, rental? Um, so for our early adopters, they are typically purchasing outright. I've sold two boats so far. Yeah. I should mention that. Um, and they're typically people who are sort of future thinking or they've already got an electric car and they're just buying them outright and they can afford to do that. There are obviously options of doing leasing or uh, sharing ownership. And there's a lot of business models out there that we could obviously gravitate to that um, if, if we need to. But yeah, early on, it's just selling outright and selling direct. So we're selling from our, our, yeah. our site and we've got our own infrastructure to be able to put in place to sell direct to and internationally. So yeah. Hopefully that helps. Cool. Yeah, thanks. Great, thank you. And Andrew? Um, yeah, one of the companies I co-founded was, was PowerVault, which is domestic energy storage, um, which has also been crowdfunded on the yeah. CrowdKeep. Um, so I think the current version has like 2,300 components, so big fan of you know, that's, that kind of systems integration. Yeah. I guess the question I've got is, in terms of thinking about all these different sort of systems that you're pulling together, is there anything that is kind of proprietary like component, or is it actually the systems integration that's the clever, um, the propriety part? So there is a lot of tech that is sort of just brought into our boats, but the control systems of how they function and how they make it all work, that is uh, Daniel's day in, day out. So that's very key to our uh, IP that we have, and that's going to be sitting in Neva Group, but also passed down into um, a light drive. When we are developing our, our jet drive system, we know that, although we haven't done it yet, we'll be able to get a patent on this new innovative jet drive that we're doing, which we've designed out all of the combustion engine parts and gone, well, if we don't have to design it like that anymore, how do we need to design it? So it means that we've got a great opportunity. I've got our patent attorneys to, to look at it and they say, yep, look, when you're ready, when you've got your scope and you've, you've got your businesses all going, you can put your time and effort into that and it'll, it'll happen. So yeah, hopefully that, that answers your question okay. Thank you. See you. Well, one from me. Um, so who would you see as your competitors? And are you worried about the obvious kind of Goliaths in the room like Tesla coming in and doing something kind of similar? So uh, there are a few uh, electric boat companies out there now. Um, Exshore probably being the most prominent. They're a Swedish company. Their USBs are slightly different with regard to their drivetrains and how they actually make their boats. They're made out of GRP, uh, so glass-reinforced plastic. We're made out of aluminium, so there's different, there's different USPs to what we're doing. Um, yes, let's say if Tesla comes along, I think it's more likely that Tesla would... They'll make their super yachts. I think they've been very um, at the edges saying, oh, we're going to make this super-duper big boat. We're concentrating on the, the power density of batteries and the size of uh, boats that are effective at the moment. Yeah. So long after sure. 
am I worried about Tesla? No, I think they're more likely to go, they're really good, we'll buy them. Okay. Yeah. I, think that, I think that's probably what would happen um, because there's so much knowledge that has to be gained to make the thing rather than doing it all themselves, they'll just buy out. Yeah. Maybe that'll be us, I don't know. That'll be a nice exit for you. Yeah, I mean, that'll be a nice exit for everyone. Yeah. Great, any, any more questions from anybody? I just have one question. What's the cost of ownership like compared to a conventional boat? Um, the similar spec? It's definitely more. It's probably about 40% more. So our starting price is about 150k, um, which is a big old pill to swallow if you're not in that sort of class of people who've got lots of money to spend on amazing uh, items like that. Um, but it's, uh, our price point is definitely about half of what uh, the other boat builders start at. So we've got a very good competitive uh, advantage of where we're starting from. So uh, I think just as the automotive industry has um, done their thing, it starts off with the uh, very expensive things at the beginning and then it starts percolating down to more uh, uh, mass market products. That's where we're starting from and it's going to happen. So you know, have to start somewhere and it takes a lot of uh, R&D and effort to, to get us there. So. Once again, hopefully that's Great. That's your question. You. Mm. Thank you very much, Charlie. Okay. Round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charlie. That was um, really, really interesting. And I think no one's going to disagree that boats and that marine industry does need to go in that direction. So fingers crossed you're the one. Um, next up, we've got Vivo Life, founded by Salvatore Nataro. Vivo Life creates natural plant-based health and fitness supplements to help you look, feel, and perform your best without costing the earth. They have a proven track record in a growing space and are definitely poised to rapidly scale. So please welcome Salvatore. Hello. My name is Salvatore and I'm the founder and managing director of Vivo Life. And as Guy put it, we create natural plant-based health and fitness supplements to help you look, feel, and perform your best without costing the earth. Our mission is to create a healthier, kinder, and more compassionate future for people, planet, and animals. We've already achieved so much together. We have done more than 21 million in revenue and have sold more than one million products since 2018, resulting in 242% growth. We created, more than, well, we created 16 plant-based health supplements formulated with purity, potency, and sustainability in mind. We've launched in the UK, Europe, Germany, and USA, and recently launched in France. We've been voted best vegan supplement brand three years in a row and have been rated excellent on Trustpilot with 4,400 reviews. We planted over 380,000 trees and we prevented more than, well, we pledged to prevent 55,000 kilograms of plastic waste from entering the ocean. And we donated nearly 100,000 pounds into charities around the world. But we don't just want to stop here. So we're looking to raise money. We're looking to raise five million pounds um, because we want to make an even bigger difference and take our mission to more people. We have bigger growth ambitions. Viva Life wants to become renowned for, well, renowned brand trusted by 
households around the globe and doing over one billion in annual revenue. We want to be known for natural, plant-based health products that really work, and, and we want to be known for a brand that gives back and inspires people to make better choices for their health, the planet, and the animals. We want to, in, by 2025, we want to 10x our revenue and profit. We want to bring in one million new customers, and we want to plant five million more trees, and we want to prevent more than 55,000 kilograms of plastic waste from entering the ocean along the way. We want to create five new plant-based products, including a brand new snack bar that we'll be launching next year, and continue to innovate our current product range so we can promise to deliver the best plant-based products in the world. We want to launch in more international markets so we can bring our mission and products to more people around the world. This includes Italy, Spain, Netherlands, Sweden, Australia, Canada, and Japan. We want to launch a brand new website, a mobile app, and our first Viva Life Cafe, so we can、um, experience people in the real world and,、um, and create a co-working space. And we want to do this whilst becoming certified B Corps. We're in a fast-growing market. The market's valued at over 140 billion pounds, but we believe so many brands are falling short on their promise of delivering products that are really Really work. So we'd love you to become part of our journey. We're going to be crowdfunding by the end of this month, and we're looking to raise five million pound. And we're still in the process of looking for a lead investor to join us. And、um, we look forward to hopefully joining us on our journey. Thank you very much, and thank you for taking the time to listen. Great. Thank you, Sal.、Uh, some impressive numbers there. Um, I'm sure we've got a few questions for you amongst the panel here.、Um, Andrew, do you want to kick us off? Yes,、uh, great presentation, and, and、uh, say, to repeat, Darren's good set of numbers. It's fantastic achievement so far.、Um, I don't think you'll have any problem crowdfunding. I've been doing it a few times myself.、Um, so one of the questions I, I had was sort of, sort of 2005 when I was at Carbon Trust, and we looked at sort of the growth of organic food, and what we saw was it, it sort of reached a sort of plateau. Around about sort of 10% of the market, because there was a certain demographic. Obviously, your core audience is kind of the vegan people who are growing vegans, and I know that that sort of gets moving forwards. Are you seeing any consumer evidence of moving beyond that kind of vegan audience towards people, you know, sort of the, the mass market, if you like? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's actually the transition we're making at the moment. So we recently had、uh, someone join us, Darren, as part of head of marketing. And、um, one of our things to take our mission further and go outside our core community, which is vegans, is we want to help people not only who are there, but people on the journey who who want to who are healthy, who are open to plant-based. So we want to take it to a wider audience. The one way to do that is we have to、um, refresh our brand. Our brand has been very product-led. And、um, we want to make Viva Life the master brand. And next year, we'll be using some of the money to do that. We'll be refreshing the brand. We'll also be testing the brand in a new market by using a research company, and we'll be taking it further and wider. And、um, but yeah, so we're literally transitioning through that, and we're already working with、um, new marketing agencies and new ambassador agencies, and we're already starting to talk to different audiences as we speak now. 
but that is currently the, the process we're in, which does increase the cost per acquisition. So normally we could go from £15 cost per acquisition to £30, but we're budgeting it going from £30 to £50. So our forecast for the next five years does incorporate cost per acquisition going up, but that is so we can reach wider audiences and start to position ourselves as the global leader in the plant-based supplement space. And sort of like you'd have Netflix for movies, we want to be Viva Life for health supplements. Good, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great, thank you. Um, Tom? Yeah, congratulations. It's quite unusual in this day and age to see a profitable business, crowdfunding. But um, yeah, so really impressive. Um, I just think in... For you, it kind of what, what we look at a lot at Red Rice is, is the people behind the businesses, and sort of 80% of the decision is about the people and the purpose. Um, can you take us back to the beginning and why you really kind of felt passionate and purposeful about this opportunity? Yeah, so I have got a story. I'll try and keep it short. But basically, yeah, I was, I was massively depressed, high anxiety, and confused and, um, 20 years ago. And um, I thought in life you either have it or you don't. And I just thought I was one of those people that didn't have it because everything around me seemed right. I had a good family, loved me, my friend. I looked okay. I was like, didn't have money problems. I was in a safe part of the world. So like, why was I, why did I feel this way? And luckily I came across a book that taught me that life's a self-fulfilling prophecy, that what you think and believe ultimately becomes your reality. And that made me realize I can change. Um, but that, I looked in my mindset, I looked at changing my beliefs and that took me so far, but it, I, yeah. I still hit a wall, and um, what I found is I was drunk on junk food, and, and what I mean by that is the food I was eating was having a physiological effect on me, just like when you drink alcohol, it affects your mood and your, your thoughts and your, your way physiologically, so does every little bit of food we eat. And when I was able to look at the food I was eating, I was able to make those changes, and bit by bit I started to feel better, but it took me a very long time because I had to wade through lots of misinformation because the quality of information 20 years ago is a lot poorer than it is today because we have social media today, which allows more freedom of speech. But many years ago, to create information costs money, and the people that had money was big companies, and big companies would create information. But a lot of the information would be very biased, so we had to do a lot, I had to do a lot of unlearning, but bit by bit I got to the truth, I found the foods that made a difference, and bit by bit my energy lifted, that zest for life came, that got me into sports and got me into fitness. Through fitness I wanted to then improve, I wanted to recover quicker, I wanted to go for longer, that got me into supplements, I started to test loads of supplements, I spent about £1,000 a month on personal training and supplements, and after testing hundreds of different supplements over many years, I started to realise 80% of those supplements were full of false promises, fillers, binders, additives and, and heavy metals, and actually, a lot of them go to the same supply chain. It was a lot of them were just marketing messages. And actually, but 20% of the brands were doing, doing what they were delivering on their promise, and they were trying the best with the technology and information they had today. So coming from an entrepreneurial family, I thought, I got all this extra energy, I want to do something. And I just thought, wouldn't it be good, all these brands that I've learned and tested over many years, to put them into one place? And, um, and that was where Viva Life started. It was the idea to... Um, put these products into one place, but through, through doing that, we decided to create our own. But after testing products over this 20-odd years, you become a connoisseur. You're able to look, see things that an average consumer can't see, and we're able to take it further, and we're able to create a product that was superior. And as you can see, people are starting to see that. And, um, and that's the ethos we take today. So we, we always promise now to be quality ingredients, no additive, no fillers, 
test our products for heavy metals, test it for purity. But also, bigger than that, we want to make sure we don't mislead everybody. We want to make sure if we create marketing, that the marketing's out there, not just to get you to buy our product. It's out there to, make you, to help you make better choices for your health, the planet, and the animals. So, yeah, there it's in a nutshell. Thanks, Sal. Good answer. Thank you. Very thorough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank We've got time for one more question. Yeah. Pepper, have you got a question? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as the others said, I mean, I think congratulations. It looks like an incredibly well, well-run well business. I was just interested in your uh, international plans, um, and particularly, I think, around about a third of your revenue is coming from the States at the moment. Yeah. Because there's a lot of businesses which go to America and crash and burn, partially uh, because... The infrastructure there is very different from the UK, so your direct-to-consumer, even things like the postal system, costs more over there than it does here. What are the challenges that you see in terms of that international expansion? Yes, so we kind of learned a lot of the problems on the way. Um, I don't see... Because we've got a global logistics company, we work with Seco, who take into account carbon footprint when we're looking at miles and stuff. We're now looking to partner with a regulation company. The biggest problem you have is regulatory, getting the foods into different countries and getting them registered. That can take a long time. And then the other problem you sometimes have is duty and taxes and working all those calculations and making sure you set the price right. Logistically, we're working with a global logistics company, so we don't see that as a problem. Marketing, we're working with global, global agencies. We don't see that a problem until you go into Japan, India, and places like that where you'd work with different partners. So to be fair, we don't see a problem. It's just time, time, and yeah. So I feel like we've we've worked all the problems. So time, yeah, just time, really, time and money, and um, right. yeah, and making sure you don't take your focus away from get get certain awareness of companies, certain brand reach, certain engagement before you dilute yourself too much. So yeah. Thanks, Sal. The thank buzzer you. has gone. I'm afraid your time is up. Yeah, yeah. But thank, uh, you. thank you very much, Appreciate Sal from Vivo Life. Thank you. What a pitch. I mean, what a response to the story. Um, I think that was a, a, a super honest, open about problems, open about a story. And I think that's sort of, you can see why it's such a strong business as it is today. Next up, uh, we have CanCan, um, founded by Dan Wright and Jim Pizer. CanCan is aiming to replace single-use cups. It's one of those no-brainer ideas that if we all adopted this tomorrow and everyone woke, woke up and their, their product was in position the world would be a better place. But there's absolutely no doubt that it's a mammoth challenge. So I'm going to leave it to the founders to tell you how they're going to overcome that. So please welcome Dan and Jim. So Dan, you like great coffee? Oh yeah, I love my morning coffee. A nice oat milk flat white with that little love heart on top and in one of those nice little takeaway cups. Ah... Yes. But did you know that every day we throw away 9.5 million single-use coffee cups? 9.5 million? That's a ludicrous number. But I thought coffee cups were recyclable. In the UK, well, UK councils don't recycle coffee cups, and currently only one in 400 cups get recycled. But what about those, all those compostable cups? Aren't they better? The problem is that compostable cups are only composted if they're collected separately 
and sent to a specialist facility. Well, that sounds like a greenwash to me. Why can't the government fix this? Well, they are talking about banning single-use coffee cups. Really? But I really don't want to give up my lovely morning coffee, and I'm just way too busy to remember my, my own cup every time. You don't have to. That's the beauty of CanCan. You can borrow and return cups for free. For free? Sounds too easy. Tell me more. It is. There's no need to remember, carry or wash your own cup anymore. So what's the catch? There's no catch. But what about hygiene? For God's sake, we've just had a global pandemic. Can-can cups are washed just like a regular ceramic cup. Oh, I hadn't really thought of it like that. It's easy. You download the CanCan app, and next time you go to order a coffee, just ask for it in a CanCan cup. You're then given seven days to return it. Yeah, but who pays for the service then? So instead of endlessly buying disposable cups, traders pay each time they serve a coffee in a CanCan cup. That sounds cool. And the cups are designed to be used over 100 times, and best of all, at the end of their life, they can get recycled into, no, into new cups. Wow, that's amazing. So they already have five of the best coffee traders in Bristol on board. The app tells you how many people have um, signed up and the waste and carbon they've saved. So what you're saying is I can carry on drinking my coffee and save the planet. Sounds like a no-brainer. With CanCan, you can. Yes, so I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Dan. And, and we're co-founders of CanCan. We want to make sharing second nature for everyone because the world has finite resources. And the more we share, the less we waste. And it's our ambition to save one billion single-use items from landfill or incineration by 2030. Our Bristol pilot has over 600 members and has successfully saved over 1,400 cups from waste. So we're looking for an investment of £2 million to take our Bristol pilot nationwide. We're on a mission here to solve a problem, and we're looking for an investor or investors who can bring their network and experience to the team to get the job done. Welcome to the sharing age. Thank you. Your questions, please. Guys, uh, I've seen a lot of pictures in my time. I've never seen one like that before. So. <laughs> well done. Well done. Um, Thanks. Okay, where shall I start? Uh, Tom, have you got a question? Yeah, quick question. Um, how, what's, I mean, you've got five traders at the moment. You want to get to 1,200. Um, have you had any pushback from traders, or is there any reason that they sometimes move slower than others? So the biggest pushback we've had yeah. are our um, sort of smaller scale traders, and we've sort of realised we need to pitch this to more established yeah. traders who are confident in their, you know, in their consumers. Yeah, because it's difficult to see why they wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, so we've taken yeah. a different approach now. So rather than going to the traders cold, we're going through the roasteries. Yeah. So we go to whoever the sort of cool roasteries are in that area and get introductions that way and ask for support of the coffee producers, you know, everyone who's within that industry to support their traders to make the transition. Cool. Great. Thank you. Um, Pippa? 
Yeah, so br- really brilliant idea and absolutely love the sort of vision of, of this because it is a problem that does need to get solved. Um, I guess my question is, do you think there is a bigger issue with the industry or with consumers? Because there's quite a lot of consumer change that uh, people need to adopt in order to adopt your, your product and proposition. How are you going to communicate that clearly to consumers? After- <laughs> So the the biggest change here is user behaviour. We're well aware of that. I think the the biggest factor in getting users to change is uh, loss aversion, so nudging people away from automatically getting their coffee in a disposable to using a reusable. Um, So from that point of view, we need to get traders bought in to put in a surcharge, for example, on a disposable to make a reusable having your coffee in a reusable look more attractive proposition. I think just to add to that, you know, more and more people realise that, you know, we shouldn't just be continuously throwing away, you know, single-use packaging, but if there's no alternative out there that's convenient, then, you know, we're just going to carry on doing what we're doing because we'll lead very busy lives and we haven't always got time to, to bring our own, you know, you know, keep cup and reusable container and, and then a bag to carry it all in. So it's providing convenience uh, to our, you know, the modern busy lives that we lead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andrew, have you got a question? So we're about to close an investment in a kind of similar business uh, in the kind of lunchtime takeaway market. So, but so yeah, that probably tells us enough about how I, I believe in this particular concept. I think it's, it's spot on. I guess it's a question on the sort of the two million round. Are you, it's, as you probably know, it's quite a difficult number to raise. Um, are you open to sort of splitting that or having a kind of staged approach? Uh, yeah, we're, we're open to all options. Uh, to be honest, we're just at the beginning of our investment journey and um, we're hoping to raise within the next six months. And, um, you know, we're, we're still on that journey as well of proving our concept within Bristol uh, so that we can prove that financial model and that it's an environmental, you know, sound solution at scale in Bristol. Fine. Okay. What well, might be worth us picking up afterwards, just sort of talk through some of those options. That'd be great. Yeah, sure, yeah. There you go, interest already. Um, I, I'm just curious, so, you know, in terms of where this is possible to take this, is it possible that you think that you could talk to the likes of Pret or Starbucks or Costa, whoever it might be, and get them to... To, to you know, adopt what you guys are doing. <clears throat> I, I think the the problem with starting with those people is that you really need those early adopters on board to stress test the system. And we believe those early early adopters will be the people that care. Yeah. And the people that care not just about the environment, but how their coffee's produced, where it's from, how it's you know it's delivered to you. Those people are really engaged, and that's what we need: is really engaged consumers, not passive consumers, to get this thing going. And that's why we've chosen to start with independence, and so it doesn't just become a sort of PR piece for a bigger, larger chain. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we've uh, just to add to that, I say we've deliberately avoided partnering with some of the big corporates because we don't want to fall into that that space of yeah, that kind of. PR story, which all sounds great, but when you actually look at the detail, it's not actually solving the problem. Yeah. Great. Um, questions from the audience? Hi there. My name is Cassie. I'm a journalist for Quartz, but as a potential customer, um, 
what happens to you if you don't return the cup within seven days? And how many of your cups would have to get thrown away by the consumers before you lost the benefits of using them at all? Shall I go? So, so the scheme works on a time-based penalty. So we've currently set that time at seven days. So you have seven days to return it to any of the drop-off points to prevent yourself from getting um, a charge. <clears throat> the cup we've, we're using, which is the one you've been using today, you only need to use it three times to see a net positive in- impact. And that means, yeah, as long as that cup gets used at least three times, we're into a positive territory. And from our, our trial to date, we're getting around a 95% return rate. So, you know, with a 95% return rate, what's that? About 20 uses as a minimum out of each cup. So we're pretty confident that the scheme is going to have a positive impact. Yeah, mm. amazing. Mm. Any other questions from the audience? Oh, hi. Um, how do I phrase this? So you said, oh, I'm too busy in the morning to remember to bring my own uh, reusable cup. But then you also have to remember to throw that away within seven days. So either you put it in the bin, in that um, special bin, right there and then, but if you take it away, do you need to look around in town for this special bin and therefore are you going to be putting special bins around town and therefore creating more stuff around town as well? So, totally, so until we have a sort of vast infrastructure to make this completely convenient, what we're, the, our consumer base that we're targeting are sort of highly engaged, everyday coffee drinkers, so you might forget the coffee, you know, to return your cup on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but you've got seven days. You don't have to return it yourself because you don't need to have um, a, get a deposit refunded to you. So um, it could be yourself. You could send the kids to drop it off for you. Um, anyone who's passing, it's early. It's an early stage, and we realise we need to make it, build the infrastructure to make it as convenient as possible. But um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, no, but, um, that's great. Yeah, you're right. Convenience is the key here. And we need to build and expand (coughs) as quickly as possible within a set location to provide that. Yeah. That's brilliant. Thanks very much, guys. Hey, thank you. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jim and Dan. So no doubt if that one was adopted worldwide, as I said, overnight, it would be a good thing. Big challenge, but hopefully they can do it. Last up, no, by no means least, we have Nude, plastic-free chewing gum, founded by Kia Carney. Um, you'll be blown away, and I don't want to steal his line, by how much plastic is in chewing gum. So Kia and his very, very experienced team are on a mission to keep us chewing, but only the good stuff. So please welcome Kia. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, I'm Keir Carney. I'm the founder of Nude. As Guy says, we make plant-based, plastic-free and biodegradable chewing gum. Um, And I'm really pleased to announce today that we're launching our first ever crowdfunding campaign, um, which goes live today. So I'm looking forward to sharing details with you on how you can get involved with that later on in the pitch. And join us on our mission to rid the world of single-use plastic gum. So I'm not sure, quick straw poll, how many people knew that regular chewing gum contained single-use plastic in the room? Quick show of hands. Yeah, so the number's 85%. 85% of consumers don't know that chewing gum is a single-use plastic. Um, so why plastic-free gum? There's your answer. And, ev- and um, plastic straws are banned, yet single-use plastic gum and the problems it creates goes practically unnoticed. So... Um, 
95% of pavements have plastic-based chewing gum stuck to them, and even responsibly disposed of gum ultimately ends up in landfill, or worse, grinds down into microplastics in, in water systems. Consumers are rightfully demanding change across all food and drink categories, and that's led by a desire to eliminate single-use plastics, seek plant-based alternatives, and a desire for products that show ingredient transparency. And that's driven by health and environmental reasons. So what have we done? We've developed the only gum that's completely plastic-free, plant-based and biodegradable, tastes great naturally, and of course we're nude, so we're transparent about we put it, what we put into our products. And core to our offering is we use a sustainably harvested tree sap called Chickle, and only fully plant-based and naturally sugar-free uh, ingredients versus regular brands that contain a large proportion of single-use plastics and lots of synthetic sweeteners and flavors. And we're entering a market with absolutely enormous opportunity. So it's a 14 billion pound global market, and that's hundreds of thousands of tons of single-use plastic waste that it creates every year. And specific to the UK, we call it a fat and happy category. So it's dominated by one player, Wrigley's, who control over 90% of the category um, and have undergone very little pressure from the government, from consumers, from retailers to change what they're doing. Um, so we feel and we know, and we're already on this path, that the category is absolutely ripe for disruption. And you've seen mission-led and innovative other brands in other food and drink categories that are well on the way to disrupting and developing. Tony's have done a fantastic job um, of uh, disrupting the chocolate category with their ethical chocolate. Oatly are doing an amazing job with their plant-based uh, plant sustainable oat milk alternative. And we're absolutely going to be the game changer in chewing gum. And we're well on the way. We launched earlier this year in May. So we launched nationally with Waitrose. We're in over 260 of their stores. Um, we've just launched last week, which I'm delighted to announce, into Morrison's, into every one of their stores up and down the country. And we've worked hard to try and get the plastic chewing gum problem into the news. So we've got some great national coverage, some of it driven by us, some of it driven kind of organically. But the tide's definitely turning, and we're turning some of those 85% of shoppers that currently don't know chewing gum contains plastic into nude customers. And last time I pitched, it was uh, to some fairly famous people on Dragon's Den earlier in the summer. And that was, again, a really great platform for us to kind of start spreading the word about the plastic waste problem in chewing gum. And we got some amazing feedback from the Dragons, who, who really liked our products and proposition. But unfortunately, we didn't bag one of them. Um, although, Tej Levani did tweet during the show um, and questioned whether they'd actually got it right not investing in the business. And we've gone on to great things since. As I said, we've bagged Morrison's, which is great. And they really buy into our products and proposition and understand that their consumers are consistently looking for kind of plastic-free um, and sustainable alternatives. So in terms of year one, we're well on track to hit our half a million pound revenue target. That's underpinned by launches with Waitrose and Morrisons already in the bank. Um, we've got a great uh, online launch with Ocado coming up later in the year. And one I'm personally really proud of is the upcoming co-op launch because they've got fantastic positioning as a retailer in terms of ethics and sustainability. Uh, and then we've got two new products to widen our portfolio out that we'll launch early next year. And most importantly, we'll stop the equivalent of six million plastic straws worth of chewing gum 
entering the environment at the end of our first trading year. And at the end of our fifth trading year, uh, we're forecast. I know I'll go on a bit. We're forecasting that um, we'll stop 200 million plastic straws worth of chewing gum from entering the environment. So the dragon said no. We're now reaching out to the crowd to raise the funds we need to accelerate our mission. We're raising half a million pounds. It's EIS assured at a five million pound valuation. Uh, that's to invest in innovation and resource to help with the working capital requirements of a very rapidly growing business and most importantly to spend on marketing and growing awareness of the plastic waste problem um, and trying to convert some of those consumers into advocates for our, our brand. So to close off, we'd absolutely love you to join us on our mission to rid the world of plastic gum. You can get involved by following the QR code on the screen now or head to nudegum.com forward slash invest um, and register your interest because um, the Crowdcube uh, fundraise will go, go live later in the month so you can get involved early um, and, and beat the rest to it if you like. So thanks a lot for listening to me and I welcome any questions from the, the panel or the crowd. Thanks, Keir. I think it's amazing what you've achieved in such a short period of time. Well, well done. It's really impressive. To the panel, um, Tom, have you got a question? It's quite a disappointing panel this time, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Dragon's dead. Um, you know, traditionally, this product's been an impulse purchase product. Are you, are you thinking about it in the same way, this brand? Or, and is it all therefore going to be through retail? Or are you thinking also kind of direct to consumer as a possible channel? Yeah. I think COVID certainly changed our kind of view. When I first went into it, absolutely, it was all about impulse, 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 and being available at the point of purchase. And that is still kind of core to what we're doing and core to our strategy. So we think that 80 to 90% of our sales will ultimately come from retail. Um, that said, I think uh, direct-to-consumer and online is it's very clearly a growing channel um, and we are going to look to harness that. So we've spent the last six months really testing our direct-to-consumer subscription model and part of what we'll do with this fundraise is really ramp that up um, and you know, spend a bit more on digital marketing and try and capture more of that direct-to-consumer marketplace because ultimately, well, Wrigley's aren't really operating there and if we're going to win, we need to win in every channel. So yes, it is a focus um, and certainly an area that we will yeah, we'll invest in. Cool. Okay. Andrew? Yeah, th thanks for that uh, great, great presentation. And um, I had a look through the pitch pack, with, which had your numbers in it, which I'm guessing are the numbers that are going to go onto Crowdcube. Yeah. Um, so what I was wondering, is obviously it's showing quite sort of healthy profit growth um, over time. In terms of where you might reapply that to, to sort of grow, the, grow your company even faster, do you see that being sort of on sort of new product development, more marketing? What's your sort of feel for where you might reinvest that profit? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we know that 85% of people don't know that chewing gum contains plastic, yet the metrics are really strong when people find out. They tell us they won't go back to regular plastic-based gum. So, a lot of our investment will be in marketing to drive that awareness piece. Um, that said, my skill set is very much in, in sales and in kind of the grocery channel. So I'd look to build out the sales function for sure. Um, we'd look to invest in, um, in out of home, so coffee shops and places like that. That's absolutely where people want chewing gum. And then in kind of year three, we're going to start looking at exploring into, into other markets. Um, so beginning with Western Europe, the consumer mindset in Western Europe is very similar to the UK, in fact, probably more advanced from a sustainability perspective. 
So I've absolutely looked to, to expand into Western Europe. Um, and then, yeah, product innovation and exploring other subcategories. So I think we've got a really strong brand and proposition. Um, and we, could, we can definitely look at areas such as mints, oral care, potentially even confectionery, but only after we've anchored the new brand in, in the chewing gum category. Brilliant, thank you. Pippa, I know you know Nude pretty well already. Have you got any questions? Well, yeah, so I have to um, now uh, acknowledge that I'm entirely conflicted because I'm already an investor in Nude. So um, uh, obviously, Keir, I think it's a brilliant business and uh, would love everybody here to, uh, to invest. I just, just uh, the, the Dragons didn't invest. Why didn't they invest? Yeah, so the main reason the Dragons gave for not investing was that they think uh, the market leader, so Wrigley's in, in this country, will wait for us to kind of create, create a need, develop a need for the product, and then come in and kind of swamp us with, with a plant-based alternative of their own. I don't think that will happen. My background is 10 years in big FMCG businesses, and I've seen from inside the ropes a lack of appetite, a lack of pressure to kind of innovate, and certainly a lack of skill to do it well. So we, well, I really feel that it will be a disruptor, a mission-led brand like ourselves that's agile enough and quick enough to kind of move and, and go with the times with the consumer need that's going to win in this space. Uh, I also think, you know, Wrigley's have got very deeply entrenched business models, which is really kind of anchored into selling plastic-based chewing gum. And for them to kind of pivot into a sustainable alternative is going to be very difficult for them, but also it's not going to sit very well with the consumers. And I don't think it's something they'll be able to market very well, given that, you know, so much of their, their profit is built around, around an unsustainable product. How would you feel if Wrigley's came along and made you a massive offer to buy the company then? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, our mission is to get plastic-free chewing gum into as many mouths as possible. Um, so, you know, at some point, we're going to be looking at scaling into other markets and, and growing the business. So, um, yeah, anything that can help us do that is positive, in my opinion. Yeah. Darren, Anybody sorry, in the audience Darren. got a question? Darren, I was, oh, sorry. Gonna, I was going to say, I, was, I, I would offer Innocent as a, a classic sort of case study in that, in that, you know, big, big major international broadening yeah, yeah. smoothies, but they still sold it for 100 million. So I, I, I don't actually believe that the incumbents will come and swamp you. I just, I never buy that as, as an yeah. argument. Yeah. But yeah. hey, the dragons are richer than me, so what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> well, only, only time will tell, but we're, we're, we're going good guns at the moment. So um, yeah, long may it continue. Thanks a lot. Cool, perfect timing. Thanks very much, Keir. There we have it. Four brilliant finalists in very, very different sectors and all at very different stages of their business journey, but joined together by the importance of being profitable and, more importantly, having, having a really positive impact. So massive thank you to, to everyone that stood up here and, and pitched, and a huge thank you to our amazing panel that have come along and um, asked really good questions. And the whole idea is that everyone in the room walks away with a better understanding of who those businesses were, who the founders are. Um, and so big, big thank you to everyone involved. We hope that's inspired you and given you some proper actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com.
Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.